You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Are you surprised at the number of times Jesus has to correct people who only have external righteousness? Are you surprised at the number of times Jesus has to correct people who only have external righteousness? Apparently, it was a really big deal in Jesus' day, and I'll show you some of that here um, in, in just a bit. But here's yet another instance, and, and if you look through Luke's gospel, if you've been tracking with us, that's what Jesus has to do a lot, is people that externally are looking great, and he has to call out internally what is going on. Where is your faith? What do you believe? Does God really have your heart, or have you just learned a list of laws and you know how to do it as well as anybody else? Well, here's another example of it with this guy. He's a rich young ruler, sometimes he's called. Um, when it says ruler, you should know it doesn't necessarily mean um, somebody with, um, uh, like someone with a formal role in government necessarily. It's probably just somebody who is influential in society. And you heard it read, verse 18, a ruler asked him, asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, Mark's gospel says that he came up to him and it says he knelt before him. So this is going up to Jesus. Um, surely people are watching. We'll see in just a minute people are at least there at the end. Surely they're watching. This man walks up. He's trusting in his own righteousness and he kneels down before Jesus. And I, I just picture this just like drama queen, like just like trying to get this attention, um, showing this false flattery to Jesus. But I want you to picture him down there on his knees going, good teacher, what must I do to uh, inherit eternal life? He knows this external way to show respect to somebody. He calls them a good teacher, but you notice the issue is he says, what must I do? And the way it's phrased actually is not just what must I do, like what, what do I need to go do? Go offer a sacrifice and then you're, and then you're good. Go get baptized and then you're fine. Go uh, overthrow Rome and, and be seated on, go, go join the army. Go do what, it's not like what's the act I need to do. He's really asking the question like, what should I be doing in life? Like what should my life look like? Like give me all the things that I need to do, Jesus, so that I can inherit eternal life. It's an ongoing question. And he is doing what many of the Pharisees tried to do as well. Remember what Jesus had to keep saying to them? You, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. In vain do you worship me. He even gives them the illustration of a cup, and he says, ooh, you have polished the outside of that cup really, really great, but the inside is rotten. Externally, Looking good. Internally, where's our heart? That's the question that keeps coming up today. And when he says, what must I do? I want you to just get how preposterous the question is on the surface. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He is seeing eternal life is something that is supernatural, that he cannot achieve on his own. Yet, the very question is, what do I need to do in order to get that? So he's literally asking the question, he's saying, give me the natural thing that I can do in order to achieve supernatural results. You have something for me that is supernatural, that's great, give me the list so I can do it of my own power, of my own will, so that I can achieve that and accomplish that. That's the question that he's asking. I want supernatural results by natural means, so give them to me. 
That's what he's asking. This brings to mind for me um, how, how I tend to handle or how you may tend to handle when there's an obstacle or when there's a big decision standing right in front of you and, and it'd be nice to get some kind of result. I would like the results that God has in his mind that I can't even dream of yet. And oftentimes what happens is when I'm, when I'm at a crossroads or I'm at a big decision or I'm in some kind of hard place, there's two different options. One is to just work like crazy in my own flesh, in my own effort, with my own blood, sweat, and tears. And the other one is to just hit my knees in prayer. And oftentimes what happens is we pick one of those. Well, this one, I want something supernatural to happen. There's something in my life I've got to get through. And so, God, would you do a work? And if you're like me, you probably tend to err on one side or the other. And if you're like me, I can sometimes give lip service to prayer and then work really, really, really hard. And honestly, what I'm trusting in is me. I'm trusting in my ability to overcome this. And really what the Bible says, like what the gospel teaches is those are not mutually exclusive, that I can pray like crazy, that I can put my trust in God, that he can get me through this, that he has, a, he has an answer, he has a solution, he has something out there, and even if, even if just you know, my whole world falls apart, he will still be with me. That's what I'm begging of him. And at the same time, I'm not supposed to just stand there and just pray, 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 and God will just, God will just do things, and he's trying to use me, and I'm going, not now, God, I'm praying. So what do we do when those come up? We pray, we pray, we pray, and we act. But the key is, if we want God to work, our hope and our trust has to be in the work of God. It means I get to the end, I don't get to pat myself on the back for how clever Jim was in that situation to get us through it. It is about praising and worshiping God. And now what Jesus wants him to do, this guy who's down here going, good teacher, what must I do? Give me the list so I can inherit eternal life. Jesus wants him to see that he's not just a good teacher, but he's actually the son of God. Look at it in verse 19. It says, Jesus said, why do you call me good? And this is the key. No one is good except God alone. If you take notes in your Bible and you're trying to find the key phrase or the key sentence in this text, it is this one. This is what God is trying to teach this man. No one is good except God alone. And there's so many layers to this. You heard me read it when we gathered. Um, uh, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. He is saying no one is good but God alone. And Jesus is about to explain to him, in a sense, he is God. And part of what's, what's hidden in here a little bit, what he's getting to is I am God. You're calling me good, but you should know that only God is good. See what he's doing? Second thing he's doing, when he says no one is good but God alone, this man should go, now wait a minute. I thought I was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. He's challenging this man's flattery. This is false flattery. I, like, I picture Jesus, and I just wonder, I don't know, I just wonder if he's like shaking his head ever. Because now, I know Philippians wasn't written yet, but I picture this man who's just on his knees, just going, oh, good teacher, trying to flatter him. And Philippians wasn't written yet, but there's a passage in there that says, um, one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And it just makes me wonder if Jesus had a sense of that, not those words maybe, but had a sense of that. And then here is this guy trying to like esteem him uh, above all. And if Jesus is just going, that's really cute. Like, do you really know who I am? Do you think my heart is going to be moved by this self-righteous man down there doing this for show? But yeah, he's probably going, I'm, I'm pretty good too, though. And so Jesus says in verse 20, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And listen to this man's response. Oh, good. All these I've done since my youth. I've done those. Now listen, people break the Ten Commandments differently. Generally, we see that there's the first four that have to do with your relationship with God. Um, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't build a, a worship the Lord, or a, don't make a graven image. Um, you know the others. Um, <laughs> Why am I blanking? Don't take the, uh, worship the God, worship him alone. Don't take his name in vain. Don't make any graven images and worship him on the Sabbath. That's what it is, as, as you know. Uh, and worship him on the Sabbath. So those first four have a lot to do with your relationship with God, who he is and how we're um, to worship him. And then the next six especially um, have to do with your relationship with mankind. And he just named five of them. Interestingly, the one he leaves out is about coveting. But it says, do not commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. So what he's doing is he's giving this section of the commandments that, um, that have to do with your relationship with your fellow man. And when he gives those commandments, what the question he's really asking him is, how do you do in keeping all of the law that has been given to you between you and all the people that are around you? And this man's answer is, all these I have kept since my youth. Can you imagine, like, can you imagine saying that? Yeah. So if I'm Jesus, if I make a bad Jesus, if I was Jesus... He could have challenged him. How hard would it have been to prove that those false? Really, all of them? Oh, since you were a little boy. Um, honor thy mother and father. Let's get your mother and father out here real quick and see what they have to say about that. Instead of arguing, what he does is he puts his, his finger right on the root of the idolatry in this particular man's heart when he says no one is good except God alone. And watch what he does. He calls out the idolatry in this man's heart. When Jesus heard this, when he heard this guy say, oh good, I've done all those and I've done them my entire life. When Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Let me be clear about something. He is pressing on the particular idolatry in this man's heart. So if somebody comes up and says, you Christians need to be obedient to this and you need to go and sell everything you have and give everything you have to the poor, they're not understanding what the text actually means, okay? This is a guy who, who had an idol of his money, of his stuff. He's the rich young ruler. And so Jesus goes, here's what I'll do. I will press on him to expose to him that that's an idol in his life. Because this guy didn't get it. This guy is coming forward thinking he's pretty darn good. Listen to this commentary published in 1808. 
Jesus sends him, this man, to discover his ruined state in the conviction of his own heart from the breach of the commandments. He knew nothing, the man knew nothing of the plague of his own heart, and therefore with the confidence of a poor, dark, blind, and ignorant mind, he declared that he had kept the whole of God's law when it was notorious from Scripture that he had broken the whole. Now, in what he refers to here in James 2.10, he says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point of it has become guilty of all of it. That's what he's referring to. And then it says, oh, what a deceitful heart the human heart is and how incapable of doing any one thing towards its own salvation. Jeremiah says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If you've read the beginning of Revelation, the church at Laodicea, Christ talks to him and says, or he gives the letter to John to give to them that says, for you say, I am rich to the church. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He is saying, no one is good but God alone. No one is good but God alone alone. It's important to get this, and one, there's many effects of it. One of them is it can really um, stop our evangelism. Like, I think about, um, like, let's say that you, um, you have a loved one that is ill, and um, some friends bring food, some friends go uh, mow the lawn, they go and they, they do groceries for you, they do all these different things for you, and they're not, they're not Christians, they're devout atheists that come and do this. And there's a part of you that starts to go, this is such a wonderful, blessing, benevolent thing that you're doing, and gosh, even some of my Christian friends feels like they've sort of gone, hey, we'll pray, and sort of thrown up prayers and then aren't really here. And so that's a weird spot to be in. That's a weird dilemma. And if we go, no one is good but God alone. Now let's say God does a great work and the loved one gets um, healthy and everything's back to wonderful and normal. And um, it's, you, it's you too maybe there. And then this other person who's been very helpful comes in. And there can be something in our cultural and in our minds that can say, it's almost rude to me right now as I'm thanking them for how much they have helped to actually talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ because we know we disagree on this. And so for me to bring it up, it's almost in bad taste to do so. Or think of it like this. Instead of going, that person basically, they just did a really, really great thing, and so my repayment is I'll just shut my lips instead of taking the opportunity to just thank them and thank them and thank them, and what you have done reminds me of what I think Jesus Christ would have actually done. Like, the greatest thing you can do for them is not go, they're pretty good, so I don't want to offend them by sharing it, but the greatest thing you can do is to say, I have to just remind you of the greatest news that I know what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Don't talk to them like that. They'll think you're crazy. I'm just firing you up a little bit this morning. But you can share that message with them instead of what happens a lot, which is they're pretty good, and because they're pretty good, maybe they don't actually need this gospel message. And the reality is, I mean, here's a guy who kept all the law from his youth. I mean, he goes through the list, and he, is, he knows exactly how to do everything externally, which is really about all we get to see in people anyway. And Jesus presses on the idolatry in his heart. No one is good except God 
alone. So he said, go sell everything, give it to the poor. And it says in verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He is giving flattery and he does not even obey the teacher. Listen to what just happened. Here he is on his knees going, oh, good teacher, I have this really, really big question. Teach me what to do, and everybody is around, and Jesus goes, here's what you need to do, and he goes, never mind. That's what's happening right here. This is, tell me some things, and I will pick and choose the things that I like. This is, I like Jesus, but I'm not going to do everything he says. Or this is, I like the Bible, but certainly I'll pick and choose the things that I happen to agree with. Let me just remind you of a couple things that if you're, if you're a covenant member with us, if you're, if you're part of the family of Rockland here, here's some things we profess. This is directly from our doctrinal statement. When it comes to the scriptures, we talk about the divine inspiration. It says, we believe the divine inspiration, the entire trustworthiness and authority of the Bible in faith and practice. We believe the divine inspiration, entire trustworthiness, and authority of the Bible in faith and practice. This means if you and I, if you're a member of Rockland and we are sitting down to have a conversation, we should be able to go back to the scriptures together and we should have a common understanding that they are entirely trustworthy, they're divinely inspired, they're from God, that it is authoritative for everything we do, for what we believe, faith, and what we do, practice. That's where the conversation starts. Then here's what we believe about Jesus. The, we believe the full deity and humanity of Je- excuse me, <clears throat> the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, who lived as a perfect example, who atoned for the sins of the world at the cross, who was bodily raised from the dead and ascended as both Lord and Savior, and who will return in power and glory in the fullness of time to judge the living and the dead, to consummate history and the eternal plan of God. That's what we believe about Jesus. We believe the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ who lived as a perfect example, who atoned for the sins of the world at the cross, who was bodily raised from the dead, ascended as both Lord and Savior, who will return in power and glory in the fullness of time to judge the living and the dead, to consummate history and the eternal plan of God. So you catch what happens. You've got a guy there going, good teacher, tell me what to do. Tell me something, but make it sure it's something that I like. And then he tells him something he doesn't like, which is he presses on this idolatry in his heart. And I think anytime, anytime money comes up, I just want to remind you of something. I, I, um, I had to check my own thesis here, which is to say, are, people, are wealthier people often demonized in our society? And I made the mistake of this morning um, going on YouTube to try and just watch um, like politicians taking, um, you know, attacking wealthy people just because they have money, attacking wealthy people to score political points. So I just started out my day angry because it was proven to be true. And we live in a culture where you don't have to say billionaires, you can say billionaires and talk negatively about them simply because of the amount of money they have. <sighs> Never feel guilty because you have wealth. That is not a biblical idea. Here is the question that I ask about money. Does my money help me worship God more or less? 
Do you know that you can actually, because the, what you have been given, instead of what, what you hear a lot in our culture today, which is you should feel shame because you have that and other people don't have as much, to, um, you can actually take this and as a Christian we can go, thank you. Like, like what, a, what a blessing that I, that I have these, that I have this, that I have this money that you've blessed me with. It can actually be turned to an act of worship. And if we start to buy the cultural idea that you should feel guilt for having it, it shortchanges you from an act of worship. An act of praise. We're coming up on Thanksgiving to be able to say thank you for what you have done and what you have provided. And then at the same time, you and I both know that if we start getting stuff, we can start going, you know, th- thanks for what you gave me. We can do it lip service, but it can become an idol in our heart as well. Does my money help me worship God more or less? This guy would be less because he did not want to give it. And Jesus, seeing he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. All he's saying there, he's using hyperbole to give an illustration to try and explain that, um, that money and wealth can corrupt and be, can become an idol in your heart. So we use it to worship God. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you have provided. I don't deserve any of this, but you have, have blessed me with it. Listen, I, I don't care how you got the money either. I, I got a buddy that felt guilty. Here's what happened. He called his, this was years ago, he called his accountant or money guy or whatever it is, and he, he said, can you take my money out of this stock, mutual fund, whatever it was, and put it into this one? And he called him on like a Monday or Tuesday or something, and then he realized it was the end of the week, and he hadn't heard back from his financial guy. And he thought, surely he got it. I sent him a phone call. I sent him an email. Long story short, the guy ended up, the financial guy like went to jail, and he was doing a bunch of terrible things. But this guy was saying, take it out of this and put it into this, because he was thinking, this is going to drop, and this is going to go up. What happened was, by the end of the week, he went, I haven't heard back from him, and he went and he looked to see what was happening with his accounts, and this one had skyrocketed, and this one had tanked. And so this guy who never got back to him and never did the thing that he asked him to do because of this guy's dumb luck and his unethical accountant made a fortune. And we're sitting there having a conversation. And I, I was, I was mid-20s or something. I remember as we were talking, I, he, he said, so I got this. Obviously, I didn't earn it. It was dumb luck. And therefore, I want to figure out what to do with it. And... It was interesting to me because if you had dumb luck the other way where you just lost money or something, you would just sort of live with it. But it's dumb luck, I got money. It's like, oh, I should feel guilty. And I remember just thinking like, why does he feel guilty? Dumb luck worked in your favor. Perhaps we say it's the providence of God that worked in your favor in this particular moment. And I remember, I, I, I just remember in that moment, I didn't really like give him it. I wish I'd thought of something smart to say, but I remember just thinking like, it looks like you're feeling guilty and it looks like you're trying to pay back something that you were given. And that's nice if, you, if that's what you want to do. But, I, you know, if I could now, 47-year-old Jim could go back 20 years, whatever it was. I would caution him if he thinks that if I just gave all that money back, then I'll feel fine. I don't know if that's how it works. And I don't know, I don't know what he ended up doing, but oftentimes that's how we operate, is I've been given something and out of guilt or shame, I have to get rid of it. That's not the Christian 
way at all. God has given to us. He has blessed us. And out of joy, we respond. We give money, sure. We give our time. We behave differently. We think differently out of response and joy because of what Christ has done for us. The cross of Jesus Christ is the place we come and our guilt and shame is taken by him. That's what the cross says. That's what the gospel says. And so here you have this rich, young ruler, knows all the external stuff, and those who heard it in verse 26 asked the question that you and I would have asked if we'd been there. Then who can be saved? If this really, really good guy can't, who has this one little problem, but really all of us deal with this, which is what they're thinking, that's why he's probably preaching it out loud, then who in the world can be saved? Who can earn their way? Remember the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they're going, whatever the list is, this guy should be on it. This guy has climbed it. He has ascended it. Maybe Jesus is just gonna tell him one or two more tricks or one or two more laws so he can get that final step. And Jesus just lovingly and graciously just wrecks this man. He's giving him the answer and he says, who can be saved? The answer is anyone who receives him. Jesus says, what is impossible with man is impossible, excuse me, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Who can be saved? People who actually bend the knee. I like this guy. I'll bend the knee and be like this, and the reason I'm bowing before you is because uh, I want something from you, because I want something from all these people that are watching me right now. And Jesus says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. The, The beauty of the Christian life is the gospel says you are never going to be good enough. Stop trying to be good enough and trust in what Jesus Christ has done. Please notice that I'm not saying stop doing good. That's different. We do good in response to the joy of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we do it with joy. But in a room this size and people online and stuff, there's got to be people that still, like I grew up in the, uh, the Bible Belt in the, in, um, in the 80s. And so I know some of you, if you've grown up different places, it may not be the same. We're very good at knowing the list. We're very good at knowing what to do. We're very good at trusting in our own self-righteousness. And Jesus, over and over and over, says that's an exhausting life you're trying to live. And as you are doing that, you're ignoring the cross where you are saying, what do I do? And Jesus Christ is saying, it is done. Trust in me. And as we come forward to take communion in just a, just a moment, if there just has to be a phrase in your mind, I, I'd, I'd give you this one. It is finished. Amen. It is done. Christ has done the work, and our response is we believe and follow him with the fullness of joy.